0: I need you to give me a spoiler right now because I'm very worried about something. Okay. Um so Vic Fontaine mentions that he's looking for an opening act in a comedian. Does Joe Piscopo appear in DS9 at all? Because I'm really, I'm really, oh no, is that where this is going? Because this is a perfect opportunity for them to team up and I'm really upset about this. No,
1: that would not be historically appropriate. Joe Piscopo is 80s and Vic Fontaine is 50s. That doesn't happen. Don't worry about it, Richard. No, no, I
0: mean, they could still because it's all, but like both of them are, you know, at this point, this is 400 years ago. So what does 30 years really matter? I guess
1: that's true. Yeah. I mean, we all think that, like, I don't know, the Civil War and the Revolutionary War happened about 20 years apart. And I mean,
0: like, also, you know, Vic Fontaine is Frank Sinatra, who had his career well into the 90s. So it could have—okay, thank God.
1: If you can call it a career. Yes, no, Joe Piscopo does not appear in Deep Space Nine.
0: I feel so much better about this series now. It's Andrew Dice Clay.
1: Oh, good. <laughs> so, what did you think about once unto the bre- once more unto the breach?
0: So, these are two episodes again, which I guess in and of themselves they're not they're they're redos of themes that we've seen before. DS Nine is the kind of thing that likes to take um, next generation plots and kind of put its own spin on this. And we're also seeing now it's again it's seventh season. It is starting to. Recycle certain ideas. But it is giving us different variations of this. Core's uh, whole plot in Once More Into the Breach isn't that different from the episode where Worf's brother comes to town, for example. Yeah. Uh, we've seen plenty. Comes to town. I like that. <laughs> we've seen plenty of exa- – you know the the figure of the Klingon who has gotten too old and is drunken and not really – I mean, how Martok kind of went through this plot too. Um, somebody going to Worf and needing him to – either kill him or restore his mojo in some way um, is a plot that DS9 does. Same with Siege of AR-588. We've seen uh, the huge battle that turns into a very Pyrrhic victory um, in the ship in the episode where Jake is— being the medical assistant we've seen that but again giving new wrinkles to this i liked both episodes very much
1: yeah i think that once more into the breach uh, is it, interesting because you're right it is it is very close to to some of the other klingon stuff that that we've seen and i i think that that's partially for a very specific reason and partially yeah. not but
0: yeah and I, and I wanted to make it clear that's not necessarily a criticism it's part of I like that it's reinforcing the pattern and giving it in different ways.
1: Well, and 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 back when Worf joined the cast of the show um, in the fourth season, I, I did say that I liked what Deep Space Nine did with the Klingons more than what TNG did with them. Yes. And it, it, it's episodes like this that are why I like how DS Nine approaches the Klingons more because it pokes at the edges of the concept. It looks at. What the problems are with their culture, yeah. with their society, with the way that they do things. And especially in this episode, what I really appreciated is that we get an interesting wrinkle in sort of a a, a class system in, in the Klingon Empire, yes. which is not something that they've really gone uh, uh this explicitly down a road of talking about before and so you know you get this kind of idea of of old houses aristocratic klingons if you want to call them that like kor and then you get these sort of working class klingons like martok
0: yeah. uh in a way this actually makes the ending of sons of moog a, a little more be, be because not at the end of that episode uh worf's brother ends up with a farming family and so he's even going to be even further removed from fighting and everything like he really is going to be living a simple life. I guess this kind of as retroactively that would put his brother in a lower class and mm-hmm. one that's even further away from the action.
1: Yeah, and I don't think we ever really get a, a clear understanding of what the House of Moog was, but it's assuming that – I, you yeah. know, if, if if you if you you know extrapolate this out to its logical conclusion, uh, a Klingon house is you know sort of like a lordship or something. Yes. And so, if you have a house, then you are by effect part of the aristocracy. Now, Martok has a house. Partially, that seems to be because that's how Klingons operate, but also partially because Martok is now a general and went to the whatever academy yeah. and all that kind of stuff.
0: So, well, you get the sense that these things do. It, it is very. It is possible it, it it needs to be under extraordinary circumstances such as you know Mar distinguished him distinguishing himself through bravery on the battlefield right it, it it does seem through through military advances people are able to get to a higher social class establish their house as just as as it is possible for a house to lose that position of honor
1: yeah which we've seen
0: plenty of times and frankly i Martog may have partially married into his honor. Remember the his wife in the episode where Z is working with her. She seems to have a very high opinion of her own lineage, so probably. Martok's line is a very up-and-coming one that gained prestige through his marriage. And, and also,
1: fr- it could be that Sorella's line was perhaps going down. It w- yes. Like, why Why would someone like that agree to marry someone like Martok?
0: Getting slightly less – yeah, he, she's more prestigious and maybe she gets up, up on his up-and-coming. And frankly, based on the things that Jadzia seemed to know about her lineage – uh, it, it's it it, it, yeah. it it was a very weak lineage in certain ways anyway, but yes.
1: Well, I think one of the one of the interesting things about this episode in particular is that Worf is really incidental to it, and and yeah. you know, this is something that that Deep Space Nine you know does quite a bit with with guest stars, but I think really in this episode, this is more talking core story, you know, more than yeah. Else. Really,
0: all Worf does is you know ask a couple of questions, and he,
1: he facilitates it, but yeah,
0: but. but you're right. He's he doesn't really do anything.
1: And I guess my my question for you is, you know, they they kind of make it a little bit explicit in in this episode about you know Martok saying something you know about oh you, you know Worf you're used to dealing with this democratic rabble et cetera et cetera, and uh, you know kind of I kind of the concept that everybody has something to offer and this is a meritocracy yeah. and and you know the Federation is a meritocracy and. There, You know, I'm assuming that there are no more <laughs> lordships. Uh, they've abolished the House of Lords and stuff like that at this point in in Earth's history. But it's it's strange because Martok is very much kind of being a little. I mean. We've always talked a little bit about the, the hypocrisy that's inherent yes. in the way that the Klingons operate, especially in their government. And you know, you see that with the High Council. You see that with the way that Martok uh, operates. You see that with the way Gowron became chancellor way back in the you know, fourth and fifth season of, of TNG and the way that Worf even acts and, and sort of this whole idea about Worf being a board again Klingon and stuff like that. Yes. And w- what I find interesting in this episode is the idea that uh, Martok is someone who I like. He's down to earth. He's haha down to Carnos, I guess. Uh, he's he's very funny. He's earthy. He's he's all of these things. He's just a he, you know I would hang out with Martok, right? He seems yeah. like a lot of fun. He's a dude. He's a dude, um, but and also he'd be very popular at some gay bars. <laughs> but what I find interesting and why I like this episode is that it doesn't it it, it allows Martok to to be hypocritical here because martok you know gives this speech about how he felt that core you know basically torpedoes his chances of going to the klingon war academy or whatever and he had to you know serve in this low position for two years on a klingon freighter until he could actually something happened and he was able to prove himself and he rose up the ranks through his actions which kind of also is a little bit um you know a a little bit of a, a weird thing because of course Martok is saying that the Klingons are not a meritocracy, but I guess they kind of are.
0: Well, it's again, it's it seems that one needs to have extraordinary circumstances. Martok was just that good that you know, he went above and beyond what any Klingon would have done in well, that it's kind situation. Of, I, that was yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, I guess it's kind of like the difference between like a Chief O'Brien and, and yeah. someone that goes to Starfleet Academy. Now, of course, the difference there is that Starfleet Academy is really just a meritocracy, and anybody can apply, but you have to be very, very good to get in. Um, no one's going to torpedo you just because you're not of a certain yeah. class. But but what well, do you think?
0: I think, well, we do remember that Nog needs to get recommended to the academy, and he does to really fucking convince Cisco in order to do. And really, the only but I don't reason think that, that
1: has to do with I don't think that has to do with his class or because he's a Ferengi. I think it has to do with the fact that. Um, That that I don't want to talk about this. (laughs) It's not relevant to this episode. But um, what I'm getting at is that, you know, Martok is being hypocritical because he went through this whole thing about core. And once he's in a position of power, he is, in effect, using his uh, authoritarian tendencies to stop core from getting his honor back. And it's strange. I mean, I like the fact that the show allows these characters to be hypocritical.
0: Well, I'm thinking about the way that he treats his aide. I mean, he's a total asshole to this guy. And it isn't until Martok basically says, oh, I would have been an aide for – we realize part of the reason he is such an asshole is because that's his – there is an – Martok knows damn well that there is an alternate version of the world in which – he did not manage to, extinguish him, to distinguish himself through victory where just as there was Mr. Picard in that one episode, we have yeah. a – there is a Mr. Martok in a way. That is just a very quiet aid to somebody like Kor who is looking down on him. Part It's very much that – and Martok feels so consumed with getting kind of his com- – with uh, – with Kor getting his comeuppance in a way, and Martok being the agent of that because he feels his position is very precarious. He is the kind of person who doesn't ha- necessarily have all the qualifications that most of the other people around him has, and so always feels inferior.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that also, you know that that kind of tracks nicely with with how Kor is going in this episode because that what was yeah. the last time we saw him? It was probably what a couple years ago. And I don't remember exactly what episode we, we last saw Kor in, but, it, it, you know, he's he's developing uh, uh, some sort of senility now, and he's got memory problems, and he's very old, and all of these kind of things, right? And, and you know, Kor is an interesting character because he does really... Um, I think, speak to the older version of what the Klingons were. Yeah, And in this episode, he's like a celebrity. You know, all the Klingons on the ship are like, oh my God, Kor's here. Oh, oh, the Dahar Master. What, what's he going to do? How's he going to go? What, oh, he's only the third officer? What does this mean? Tell us a story about how he used to fight the Federation. <laughs> you know, all these kind of things. And I like that, that the show creates this sort of mythos around Kor. And, and at the same time, the show is very mean-spirited towards him and allows some of the characters to... Yeah you know, really make fun of him. And I think that the key, I mean, the key scene for me in this episode is, uh, uh, when Martok is essentially, you know, just really, really railing into core and just making fun of him mercilessly well, after he's forgotten
0: in the cafeteria. Yeah.
1: Yeah. After he made the mistake about, um, taking, what was it after he took the ship over? And- so he
0: takes over the ship. People, they, they, the original plan was they're just going to do a strafing run you know, do what they can and get the hell out of there. So, right. in the process of doing that, uh, the Martok and his next officer get temporarily injured, and command goes to core. He seems to think he's back fighting the Federation, and that his orders are to do a second run. So that ends up because he orders the second run of it. That ends up they stay longer than they need to, and some ships are destroyed. Right? I. It, it's the kind of thing where. Yes, they are being extraordinarily nasty to him, but at the same time, Core fucked them up a lot. There were yeah. a lot – there were a many, many unnecessary casualties from this. I mean in the next episode, we're dealing with command losing, uh, losing people under them, and certainly Martok is going to have a different view as a Klingon, but he still lost a few ships that were under his command for a stupid reason.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that there's a couple things there, though. Number one is that that's kind of a human-centric way to look at it. Because I think that the Klingons would, you know, not exactly happy about the fact that they lost their ship, but they did go off and they fought in glorious No, battle, no, and they're dead and they got honor and all that stuff and they're going to Stovakor, So that's fine. And and I I don't want to, you know, it's a fine line to walk, of course, because one of the reasons why Kor does that is because he's, he's developing senility. And yeah. so you can't really... There, it's it's difficult to to uh, uh uh be critical of Core for that decision in the same way as if he had made an actual decision. To no, but, but 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 he does make the decision to hide the fact that he is having memory problems. Yeah, so that is kind of like the gray line there. No, it's,
0: it's he is not. He is at a point where I i think it's clear, and nobody necessarily realizes it until realizes it until that particular moment, but. Core is not capable of having command at this point. He is, frankly, un- un- unwell, especially at that moment. He is not able to be counted on in that same way. And so, uh, again, it's a very I- – I think Martok is a little more complex in the cafeteria scene because he is definitely starting it and those – you know the two women under him are and, um, egging him on. But he does seem to get a little upset because he does feel at times I think they're going too far. Like he's – in a way, yeah. this is – this is – something between martok and core and every anybody else is overstepping their bounds i think
1: well and the other i mean well there's a couple things there i think of course number one is that core basically shuts it down with that you know (laughs) horribly sad thing about the fruit of life and blah 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 so that's number one core does get a good parting line and makes martok feel bad it is true martok will be that one day yeah, yeah, he will be. I think we all will be there if we don't, you know, get put in camps by President <laughs> Trump. But um the other thing too that that I think is key to this episode is the fact that nobody really knows the real core. And I yeah. think that's what it comes down to is that Worf is the closest to knowing Core, right? Because and, Jadzia knew Core yeah. and they they hung out with Core together. But Martok only views Core as this asshole aristocratic Klingon obstacle yeah. who torpedoes his his chances of you know going to the academy and had to spend two years scrubbing toilets on a freighter and the rest of the crew of his ship sees Core as essentially well
0: the Dahar Master Davy Crockett
1: yes so
0: and I, and, and, and,
1: and nobody knows who the real Core is and so that's why the no end one of the episode the Core of Core yeah. That's why the end of the episode is so you know beautiful because it allows Core to show both both sides of him. It it it, it allows yeah. him to show the you know Davy Crockett you know mythology side where he was able to fight off ten Jem'Hadar ships and get them back yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And it also shows you know what what Core is actually capable of as a man.
0: Yeah, and I think at the I, I mean from that very beginning, Worf, you know. O'Brien and Bashir are talking about, oh well, what really was Davy Crockett thinking, and was he really a hero? Would he have surrendered if that? And Worf essentially says it doesn't really matter because there's the truth of the story. If you know the, and, and yes, we see certainly Klingon culture is much more interested in legends than Federation culture is, but. For a Klingon, the truth of the story isn't the literal what happened, but the the spirit and the honor. And so, what they get from you know the songs that they will sing about Kor, they're going to take out the verses about how he fucked up, and you know because that doesn't make that doesn't make for a good song. But they're going to talk about how he bravely held the line until you know by himself until these and the dehar master you know went to stove core in a blaze of glory like that that's the importance of core that's the story of core that's what core has to teach other people
1: yeah no yeah absolutely and I mean, ultimately
0: I... it's not that ultimately it's not that you will be too old to be useful it is that even you know at the long-lived, you know, the Dahar Master lived a long life of battle and conquest and, you know, died in glorious battle. That's the truth
1: of that. Yeah, and in 500 years, a story of Kor is going to be that he held off 100 gem yeah. ships and not just 10. A you thousand. Know? Yeah, right. Well, I think that that's really right. And I, I, you know, I want to go back to the 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 wharf interpretation of the Davy Crockett story because I think it's actually really key to understanding the episode. You know, he actually says, um, essentially he says, Well, if you believe in the story of Davy Crockett, then he died a hero. If you don't believe that Davy Crockett was a hero, then he was just a man, and it doesn't matter how he dies. Yeah, that's pretty much a summation of Klingon cultures you could ever get, and it's also a pretty good summation of what Kor's role in this episode is. You know, because again, I mean, it it, it's a little meta because you know Kor's been around since the original series. He was in Errand of Mercy. You know, we see we've seen him. For, I mean, at this point it's been over 50 years, but at this point, then it was like 35 years, but still. He
0: himself is, in a way, a legendary character to us, especially because, you know, he doesn't maybe have quite the stature as Spock does for, you know, us as the audience, for example, or Sarek, but just because we've spent more time with them, he's on that level. He has right. that much prestige.
1: Right. And I think the only way that they, I mean, this would have been maybe a little too on the nose, but I think that the only way they could have really gotten that across to the audience would, instead of being the story of Caleb for, you know, be the story of, 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 uh, uh Organia and narrative mercy. Yeah. Right. And, and mention Kirk by name or something. I, uh, he faced Kirk in battle and blah, you know, um, they don't do that. Cause I think that they, I think that's a little too coy for the episode. Maybe. Mentioning Kirk would have been too coy.
0: I think, in a way, yeah. Like I'd, I'd I don't think know. not
1: mentioning Kirk is coy. Huh? I mean, m- mentioning Kirk would make it explicit, not coy.
0: I, I, I get, maybe coy isn't the right word, but just a little too maybe on the nose. Then is what I'm thinking of, which is the yeah. opposite of coy. Yes, isn't it?
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, Richard well. just learned to speak English last week. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. I think that that. Yeah. Ka-plah! Well, yes and <laughs> yes and no. I. I I, I'm always a little. I, I I find the franchise's reticence to even utter the name Kirk ever to yeah. be a little tiresome. Sometimes, you know, <laughs> especially since there were multiple episodes of the of the Next Generation that featured Spock that there was an episode that featured uh, 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 Scotty, you know, McCoy appeared in in Encounter at Farpoint. Like, I I think to some degree, not mentioning Kirk is just kind of like, just mention his fucking name. Like, he exists. He's around. He's an outside presence on the franchise. You know, and and you don't need to mention Kirk every single episode. You don't need to uh, name a ship after him. You know, uh, all these kind of things. But it doesn't have to become like a reference game. But in an episode like this, I Hmm. think it would work.
0: The only other thing is, I guess that they do want to have a situation that, um, core can mistake the situation for, uh, which the episode that with it, which errand of mercy it doesn't jive as well.
1: That is true too. Yeah, and
0: I don't know. I, I I can definitely the references to original series in the next generation made sense since that was supposed to be a. a, a it, it, that started from a place of it's the same thing 30 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And since DS9 is coming from a very different place, I mean, they got all of the Kirk references out in, uh, in uh, More Tribbles and More Troubles. So I don't know. Do you mean Tribbles and trials? Tribbles and Tribbles and Tribbles.
1: More Tribbles, More Troubles is in the animated series. You
0: know what I mean.
1: <laughs> Did I?
0: Tribbly, tribbly true. I <laughs> Tribble sat on you. <laughs>
1: The trouble with triples. Wait, no, that's not right either. Um, yeah, I think so. And uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think that that you know, if this is the way that they want to send core out, it's a good way to do yes. it. Yes. Oh, yeah. And um, Worf doesn't have a lot to do in this episode, which I think is great because I'm getting really tired of Worf. Uh,
0: and <laughs> no, that's fine. I think we all are. We're 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 almost ready to be done with him. I I'm ready to be done with it. Yeah.
1: I it's it's interesting though. I mean, I, I you know. I, I was getting ready to be done with The Next Generation at this point uh, when we were in those podcasts.
0: Yeah. I'm not ready to be done with Deep Space No, I'm not either. It's, I, because the show is still – and again, even though these two episodes are retreading certain themes we've seen before, they're doing it in a new, in a new way, and they're doing it very well. I mean this at this very, point in TNG, we were seeing Sub Rosa. Yeah.
1: So – This is a very self-assured, confident show yes. that – knows what it's doing at this point and even if it makes missteps they're not unforgivable ones and you know tng in its seventh season was getting tired they were running out of ideas deep space nine doesn't have that problem and i think of course partially that reason is because it has an ongoing storyline about a war which we will find out in the next episode uh which explicitly deals with that but yeah i i think that it's it's um I think it's unfortunate that that we're getting towards the end of it already. Yeah, because I want a season eight.
0: Well, aren't there novels?
1: There are, and I've read most of them. Uh, so
0: I feel like we should talk about Esri, but I find her found her storyline in this really boring. She had a storyline, exactly. Um, well, so so she's talking about Core, and you know, oh, if I could fight against alongside him one last time. Quark overhears it, think he's t- thinks he's talking about Wharf and is like, no, you can't go back to Worf. And then she orders a Moscow Mule. Is that a real drink? Yes, and you serve it in a copper mug. What is it? It's vodka and lime juice, kind of it, like one of those kind of things. Why are all of these aliens drinking
1: human beverages?
0: Again, it made sense when Curzon drank Tranya. It would have been great if... Uh, it, it seems like... Esri seems like somebody who has never drank before and then so- and doesn't know what she likes. And so she or- she's <laughs> ordering every single, you know, probably, let's say it's cork, probably has, has given her a gigantic list of every cocktail he can make. And she's going down the list in order. Ears. So she's on the M's right now.
1: Wow, she was really drinking. Oh yeah. And she's I, only been on the station saying, for like a month.
0: And she's not exact she's a she's a small person, you know. She's gonna
1: Well, we'll talk more about Ezri <laughs> in the next
0: episode, but uh
1: yeah, I, I, I think um I think that that I don't really like what they're doing with Quark and Esri, and I hope it yeah. stops. And that's really
0: all I have to say about that. Well, at least Quark's into somebody in a way that isn't as creepy as he's usually into people. Like he's actually kind of realized like okay here's somebody who's not ready for a relationship so we'll we'll strike up a friendship and then until she's ready and that way you know like that that Until
1: she's ready to give me Umax? Yes. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Are we ready to talk about the siege of AR558?
0: Are we? This episode does feel like it took the ship, uh, the Jake in the hospital episode, and uh, what's the other one? It seems like it took several episodes and put them into a blender. Um, This is um, very—in the pale moonlight. Uh, We're dealing with another episode that's showing the Pyrrhic costs of victory and the responsibilities of command. And every single time DS9 does one of these episodes, it's very good. What
1: does Pyrrhic mean? Pyrrhic? I'm kidding. I know okay. what it means. no, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that um it's strange cuz apparently the siege of AR558 is a, another controversial episode. Really? Well, I I can kind of see why. Um, you know, because they they based this on a real battle, the Battle of Guadalcanal, which was I don't okay. know that a lot about World War 2, but um that was a key pivotal battle in, in in the Japanese front. And you know, so so they want to keep this this uh this little piece of rock. Um, because it has a a a Jem'Hadar communications yeah. array. That seems important. And you know, Deep Space 9 is definitely, you know, as we've seen in other episodes, is a show that is sort of dirtying the Federation a little bit. And it's yeah. kind of showing the fact that, you know, the Federation can be stretched. The the Federation does have supply lines. The Federation does have manpower issues. And the 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 real thing is that yes. I mean, we'll we'll talk about Quark's little monologue in this episode because I think it's a perfect example of you know how deep space 9 is is questioning um the the federation but and and not to say that that deep space 9 is destroying the concept of the federation no, it is but... definitely still honoring it and and coming around to it I think even you know questioning it to make it stronger in a way
0: but i well i i would say it's a little more honest about human nature um tng believes that human nature is going to evolve to a point where we're going to be past all of these arguments and stuff and while even later seasons and uh movies like first contact deal with that a little bit ds9 comes from a realist perspective which is going to say no human nature will be the same if it's different And, and again that's the point of cork's monologue
1: Yes, and I, I think—well, I mean, we're we're dealing with a show that, that has really no influences from Gene Roddenberry, so that's not that surprising. Yeah. Um, and we don't need to talk about Gene Roddenberry because we've talked about him a lot already in this podcast, not this one specifically, but in the past.
0: Although I will say they both get to the—with or without Gene Roddenberry's influence, they do get to the idea that this is important and that the Federation is good and that there are— I. DS9 in many ways may be more realistic, but it's not cynical and it's not a pessimistic show.
1: Well, no, I, I I don't think so. I mean, the the, the entire a, reason why these these troops are are you know combative and angry and pissed off and grumpy and yeah. and in a bad mood is because they have been left on this rock for six months or whatever it is, almost
0: double the amount of time that regulations say that they're supposed to. They're bring. running.
1: They're running out of food. They're yeah. running out of medicine. They're running out of everything. You know, they they don't have a doctor anymore. It seems. I mean, that guy yeah. had the bandage on that that did not look good, and um, I think that that. What this really comes down to is that, you know, and, and maybe we'll just talk about Quark's monologue because I think it's a good way to actually get into the the, the themes of this episode. But you know, Quark essentially says, you know, and, and I think it's a little weird the Quark is there, but you just have to kinda of go yeah. with it. Um you know, Quark essentially says, you know, take away all of their creature comforts, take away their suites, take away their replicators, you know, take away everything that 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 makes the Federation, you know, comfortable for for people that live in it. Yeah. And
0: that makes Earth the utopia that it is in this.
1: And and humans are going to be horrible, essentially. Hmm. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think that when you put people in situations that are like this if you put them in very very desperate situations mm-hmm. you know human nature is going to be you know emotion and 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 when you have that you are going to get grumpy pissed off people that are not happy and then, at, at the same time i think that what i mean this is not something that deep space 9 ever makes explicit but my interpretation of how the Federation operates and how Starfleet operates, and you see this in a you see this in a lot of episodes. You know, think back to like Homefront, Paradise Lost. Yeah. Think back to something like the Drumhead, where individuals can have very very bad instincts, but the Federation and Starfleet have come up with laws, regulations, you know, norms surrounding how things operate that are very, very, very strong and ingrained in their culture, Mm -hmm. their society, and their government. And so it's almost like a self-correcting mechanism. Now, this is directly relevant to what's going on in America, of course, because we have a president who is shitting all over our democratic norms, and we'll see how that goes. So I think that's what it really comes down to. I mean, even even that that minor, you know, that little throwaway line that you could miss about how frontline troops are supposed to be Rotated off every 90 days. Yeah. You know, that's something that the army, the American army, has, you know, in effect now. You know, you're only, I mean, I don't think it's 90 days, but there is you're not amount. supposed to be left on the front lines for two years yes. or whatever. You know, you do get rotated off because you, you know, human, the human psyche just can't yeah. handle that.
0: I, I mean, one of the things that about this episode is they, they, their concerns about how long they're on, it's almost double the amount of time, are legitimate. If, if, if this is that important, well, these people are not going to be able to defend it that well. If it weren't for Cisco and the reinforcements he brings and the morale he brings, they would have lost this battle. If if if
1: and he doesn't even really bring anybody. That's that's no, the thing I that's know. Kind of, you know, and that was a that was a a, a, a deliberate decision on the part of the the, the writers of this episode yeah. that they didn't want to bring in Worf. You know, they didn't want yeah, to bring yeah, in yeah. O'Brien. Because these were characters that had a lot of combat experience, you know. That's why you have Nog here. That's why you have Ezri. Yeah. That's why you have Bashir
0: and Quark. Yeah. I think part of it is that again, the, this is coming from Quark, who is the outsider to the Federation, um, who has seen. I mean, he, he's seen he's seen a lot in his time. He's a bartender. He's worked through a couple of occupations of an of of the place where he lives. He has seen starving people. He has seen, he has seen what the Bajoran resistance dealt with, you know, how, how that hardened them. I mean, I'm thinking about the episode with Worf and Dax on Ryza, where in a different way, that was kind of the point that the guy who wanted to shut down Ryza was making. Wasn't it that, you know, you're becoming too soft. And he was, from his view, the creature comforts didn't make people nice and friendly. And you know, taking them away makes them ugly and violent and bloodthirsty. From his view, the the creature comforts are making people too soft, and that taking them the way will hone them in order to be able to properly defend themselves. So it is a perspective thing. I mean, we we we're seeing in this episode, we see being pushed beyond the creature comforts. Uh, making these people ineffective in many ways because mm. they've been taken away from it too long. Well, yes, maybe as soldiers they're going to be they're not going to have the best food and they're not going to have the most cozy quarters, but they should normally be better than this.
1: Well, I think that I, I, I kind of agree with that and kind of disagree with that because I think that that yes, you know, the it's not that these people need replicators and beds and hall suites and all this kind of stuff and if yeah. they were serving on a starship it would be wonderful. Uh, yeah, these are frontline troops, and and being frontline infantry troops is not pleasant. Yeah, it's never going to be pleasant. I don't think there's any way that it could ever possibly be pe- pleasant unless the Federation just uses robots or something. Um, and so that's and there really must what, be
0: a reason they don't use robots because they don't use robots. You know what I mean? Right.
1: And I think that they're yeah. I think that's right. And and this episode really comes down to the question of who the fuck is cleaning the toilets in the Federation. Right, yeah. like there are things that people would just have to do that are not very glamorous, fun, enjoyable, whatever it is, and well, so you know if if you take this out to its if you spin this out to its logical conclusion, um, I guess people do this stuff because it's important for the existence of the federation. And it's a socialist society. Everyone is going to rotate in and out and yeah. do things that they don't necessarily want to do. Now, do I think that the Federation president is taking a stint uh, cleaning the toilets at McDonald's? No, I don't. But
0: I mean, does this mean that, for, for example, a if— if bashir had not been genetically modified would that have been his job is that the kind of thing that where i is and that, that yeah and that is gets, that the th- that's the thing that we have to we have to deal with in the federation
1: yeah and that gets re- i mean that's kind of a gross idea you know yeah. that they would be putting you know people like that in into but then again is it classes of me to think that cleaning toilets is not something that people should want to do i you know i don't know it's a it's a hard question and i think that
0: i mean it's not the most intellectually stimulating job it's not the most pleasant job, but it's not hell. Well, I'm I sure, mean, and especially I'm sure Federation toilets have technology to take care of most of it.
1: Yeah, and I I think that they're self cleaning, um, just like Quark's ears. I I think that w- what it really comes down to for me, and this is getting a little bit far afield for the episode, but I think this is an episode that is, mm. you know, asking hard questions about who does the grunt, the grunt work of the Federation and Starfleet, and the answer is people that you know, are, these are very capable people. They seem very smart and intelligent. Yeah. Uh. You know, they've just been here too long. And what it really comes down to for me is that that line that Quark has the monologue about, again, you know, the Hall of Suites and all that stuff is kind of the same idea that, that, um you know, a lot of socialist theory has, which basically says, you know, look, if, you know, we, we have a, a crime and we have unhappy people and we have people abusing drugs and alcohol and all these things. You know, because we live in a capitalist society, which says that the only way that you can survive is, is if you sell your labor. And, you know, people that are stuck in positions of poverty, it's very difficult to to get out unless you get a leg up. And so, you know, the idea is kind of like, well, if you give people health care, you give people uh, food, shelter, you know, all of the necessities of life. If you make them feel connected in a way and part of a society, you know, these problems uh, uh, resolve themselves to some degree. And I I think that's really where the Federation is coming from. And I also think that these people, once they get back to the Federation, are going to be fine. Um, This is a society that will treat them well. This is not a society that, uh, you know, there's some crazy statistic about how many veterans are homeless. Oh, God. Uh, That's not going to happen here. You know, they're going to go back. You know, they're going to a hospital. They're going to earth. They're going wherever they're going they're probably not going to be on the front lines again, and if they are going to be on the front lines, it's going to be after six months or a year of mm-hmm. hanging out and haul sweet time and playing tennis and whatever the hell they want to do, eating a bunch of steaks you know so I think that there is an element of that which is this is how you take care of people and in in uh, uh you know really extraordinarily difficult circumstances like the Dominion War is turning out to be, it is really going to test the the conditions and norms and and you know uh, cultural uh, uh you know the cultural legacy of the federation yeah but it's still gonna hold
0: yeah again this it's just that this i don't think the federation has dealt with anything on the level of the dominion war even with everything that even everything it was dealing with with Cardassia or the klingons that was just one empire really it's Federation is normally probably has enough resources where it can rotate t- troops out every three months. Right, they just can't.
1: Right, they just can't do it. There's, there's. This is an existential threat to the Federation. This is probably the worst war that the Federation has ever been in, and they're going to have to grapple with that. I think for years to come. Now, you know, it, we're talking a lot around the episode. I think that that you know, in in, in a certain sense, the episode is. Fairly straightforward. Yeah, you know they go to a planet, they fight off the Jem'Hadar, end of episode. But how they do it, I think, is the important thing here, and especially considering the fact that Cisco is not a ground troop no. guy; he's not a general, right? And I think that you get a little bit, uh, um, y- you get a little easygoing with that sort of thing sometimes in Star Trek about like. You know, captains becoming
0: generals. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They're not really the same skill set, but okay. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, Cisco, if anything, is able to direct ship. You know, battles. But
1: well, maybe the thing to talk about is uh, uh, Nog in this episode. Yeah. Especially considering the fact that he's lost his leg,
0: um, and apparently is having a. I mean, the fact that he has an injury that's apparently bad enough that even Bashir doesn't think he can fully fix it.
1: Possibly not.
0: Yeah. Quark is very worried that Nog is becoming too human in a lot of ways. What he he's never been one who's really approved of Starfleet uh, and and of Nog's ambitions. But in this, I mean part of his he's that Nog seems to think this the one soldier who has the necklace's necklace of Ketracel-White, for example. He thinks that's the coolest thing. For I don't know that he thinks it's cool. I think he does. He he he. Well, he sees. He sees. I think he thinks it's
1: impressive.
0: I, I I don't know if there's necessarily a difference in this particular case, but for Nog, this guy is the most badass super soldier, and he's killed a lot of Hadar And Quark views that as having crossed a certain line. For this isn't somebody who's just. Performing the role of a soldier. This is somebody who's become bloodthirsty. He's taking these trophies resembling, you know, which, which are symbolic of the Jem'Hadar's very existence in yeah. many ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, Quark thinks of this as a very gross trophy. The, the reason that he talks about, you know, you take away their their creature comforts and they become, you know, bloodthirsty Klingons in a lot of ways. He's worried that his nephew is going to cross that line. More than anything, I think that's where what what he's afraid of having, having sympathies for humans is going to be.
1: Part of Quark's reticence here is is that as well, but also the fact that he is questioning— I think there's some projection going on here, because I think Quark is questioning the Ferengi way. And I don't know that he's comfortable with that. I mean, Quark is certainly an intelligent person, but— I don't know that he is uh, uh, mentally or emotionally equipped to go against everything that he's been taught is right. Yeah, and and he is questioning a lot of what Ferengi society and culture has taught him that he is right. That is right. I mean, let's not forget. You know, he's dealing with a mother who wants to earn profit, that wants to wear clothes. You know, he's dealing with uh, a feeling that the Ferengi Commerce Authority is being uh, extremely unfair to him. Yeah, Uh, you know, I think that there. You know, he he allowed a union in. You know, they have. He has conversations with Garrick about. You know, I hope the Federation can save (laughs) us. You know, well, I
0: guess for. I guess for Quark, in a lot of ways, the Ferengi way works as long as it's working. I think Quark does believe that there is an ideal version of Ferengi society, one maybe based around this great river of commerce from last week's episode, where, you know, com- the What The what? Exactly. <laughs> um, but, but but no, the, the characters have talked about a possible version of Ferenginar, which is based on a moral capitalism. Now, whether or not moral capitalism can exist is a, is way beyond the scope of it, and I think most of my personal friends would say no. But Like me. Yeah. Um, but I think for Quark, he thinks that maybe a version could exist that is solely based on people have needs, people have wants, people have things they have too much of, and you need somebody to handle all of that. And if they take a cut, well— You know, it's only fair to pay them for their labor. Um, Well, I
1: I mean, not to cut you off, but let's not forget that the Quark in this episode also says that if the Ferengi had been in charge, this war would have never happened. Well, that's
0: exactly where I was going.
1: Which is armchair quarterbacking to a ridiculous degree. but But
0: even as late as now, Quark seems to somehow think that the Dominion could have been negotiated with. Right, right. Which is a very Ferengi idea. He believes that everybody, you know, that the Federation has things that the Dominion want and the Dominion have things that the Federation want. And that they, you know, with the Ferengi being everybody's friend, everything can be even and everyone can go home happy. And I think the more that. Quark sees the more he realizes that the philosophy just doesn't work in the face of a – the Dominion is something that neither the Ferengi nor the Federation kind of can understand in a lot of ways because the Federation thinks that – the Federation thinks everybody can be negotiated with because everybody just wants to get along in the end and that all conflicts are misunderstandings and that eventually – You know, we can all be friends. The Ferengi think that everybody can get along because, again, everybody has stuff that they want to do and they, you know, they need, you know, peace is a lot easier to carry goods back and forth. Uh, The Dominion doesn't give a shit about either of those. And Quark is beginning to, is seeing that it's not fucking working. You need to maybe take people to this point of desperation in order to fight the Jem'Hadar.
1: Yeah, well, I also think, too, that, that, Quark is being naive in an interesting way and that in in a certain sense, I think Quark's attitudes in especially the last couple seasons of the show surrounding, you know, Nog and Starfleet and and the Dominion are a little bit of commentary on the idea that a lot of people in outside of the Federation think the Federation is naive. You know, the Cardassians think the Federation is naive. The Romulans think the Federation is naive. Hell, I think the Klingons probably even still think the Federation is naive to some degree. And, you know, let's not forget in the, what, I think, what, the first season of DS9, maybe the first episode, I don't remember. No, that's not right. There was an episode where Kira basically said, like, oh, in the Maquis, um, you know, basically the the famous line from Kira, which is kind of like the, the, you know, mission statement for DS9 is, you know, these are your own people, and if you think they're the enemy, you're even more, the Federation is even more naive than I already think it is. Yeah. You know, and so... And that was way back in what the second or third season of the show. So now you have Quark, who I think is showing a bit of his naivete, yeah, and and in effect saying that the Federation is more with it than the Ferengi, hmm. in a way. And I don't know that that's wrong.
0: Well, the Federation are the one who actually seems to recognize that the Dominion were a problem. The Ferengi. Uh, again, the thought that you could have negotiated with the Dominion and somehow been an equal bargaining partner is ri- a ridiculous one.
1: Right, right. Because I mean, the 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 Dominion has fleets and fleets of Jem'Hadar
0: ships, and the Ferengi has the best that the Ferengi, Berry
1: wine? I don't know. The
0: best that the Ferengi could have been could have gotten was to be modified as a Vorta or a uh, Jem'Hadar to be just handling all of the accounts of the Dominion like it wouldn't if they would not have their sovereignty under
1: well if there's if there's one thing that the Dominion needs it's more laser whips well so (laughs) yeah and I think that I mean I want to talk about about um, uh, Nog a little bit more because I, I do think that the episode is doing something kind of interesting with him which is developing him into uh, a, a real person to a degree. yeah. You know, I mean, I think that, yes, losing his leg is bad, and he's he's trying to talk, like, he's trying to convince, um, you know, even, even Cisco that he's going to be fine, which is, is strange. And that also has something to do with his age, I think, because, of course, when you're that young, you yeah. you know, optimistic and wonderful and everything is great. Uh, but at the same time, this is a character that, you know, and of course, a lot of characters die. We haven't really talked about any of the, the guest stars, but, you know, I mean, they're just... You know, they're 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 uh, uh, archetypes. That there's
0: hot Mumbly bandage guy and right. doofy engineer and who played Tuco from
1: Breaking Bad. Oh yeah. And then there's there's the the engineer Bill Mooney.
0: Oh uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, was uh, Lanier from from Babylon Five. And then there was Lady. Then there was Lady, and she was great and died. I I, I think that you know, so so really those. Are I just, mean,
0: I knew that again. This is. I knew going into this episode, this m- most or all of these secondary characters are going to be dead by the end. That any of them survived, I was surprised about. Frankly, well, I,
1: I yeah, but I think you know, obviously, we can't have uh, um, Ezra get killed because Nozia was just killed. We we can't have Cisco get killed. No, no, no. None, no none I of, knew, not, no, no, I knew, none, none of our, our main our... characters are going to get killed, but. Something has to happen to one of them. And, you know, it's Nog. He's not a main character, but he has been on the show since the first season. He's someone who we've known for a very long time. And no, he does not die, but he loses a leg. Yeah, That's about as dark as the show can get, I think, at this point. Yeah. And it's good that the show recognizes that there need to be some sort of consequence for someone that we actually know.
0: Well, again, all vic- I think the show believes that all victory is Pyrrhic, and so everybody has to lose a little something. And I think the show is good enough in these kind of episodes I don't know where, that it's a
1: pyrrhic victory,
0: though. I mean, well, I, because it's, they,
1: they, they hold it. You know, they're, they're not just holding this planet because they need the planet. I mean, there
0: is something... No, they win. They win. This is something where, you know, we, we have to assume based on this that they do get whatever information that they could need. This is a, an episode like the ship in which victory is won. But at the cost of these lives, again, the episode ends with this th- finishing up the through line about the casualty reports where at the beginning, I, I mean, this is in the ship ended with Dax and Captain Cisco dealing with the fact that they won, that the, you know, Starfleet intelligence thinks the world of them because they were able to get this ship, which we see in a later episode provides to It, it, it is un, an unparalleled victory in the ship. And yet It ends with the two of them feeling like, well, people died and, you know, people were lost and we have to remember them. And that's, it doesn't, it's not supposed to get easier. As a captain, you have to deal with the fact that people die under you and you have to remember them. And this episode begins with Captain Sisko saying that I tried to do that with the casualty reports and I was doing it for a while, but eventually they blurred. I mean, Kira brings him a list of 1,700 names at the very end and he's, say, you know, these weren't just names, they were people and Kira I mean no- Christ, if two thousand people a week are dying. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I guess that and I guess that's where it is, even when even knowing that the Federation is making gains and has done so much, it's gotten DS9 back. It's it's uh it has this communication array. We've seen it destroy factories of ketracel White and shipyards. It's doing well but 2000 people a week are dying and they they were people and how do you deal with that enormity even as you want to
1: so 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 it's either you have to Well this this episode its point I think is yeah. really to just make make it clear yeah, who who is paying the price for this? Yeah, how they're paying the price for it, and and what this war actually
0: looks like on the ground. Even if Cisco can't remember seventeen hundred names, he knew the half dozen people that he was with, and and he chose to stay. And yes. I think
1: that that's the other thing too that that I think a lot of people miss with this episode is that Cisco didn't have to stay, yeah. and I think a lot of captains wouldn't have stayed. You know, and the 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 fact that Cisco does make that decision to stay. I mean, he doesn't have a lot to do in the episode, no. but he's a Cisco guy. You know, he's his regular Cisco guy, and he's he's being well, uh, uh, charismatic and strong and and a good leader and and uh, you know, bringing the morale up and all of these things. Well, and, there's
0: the part where the uh, engineer is saying starting to explain the mines, for example, and Catcher Cell White guys like, well, he's not even gonna be there. Like that is part of, I think, why Cisco does stay because I think he does recognize that. They're expecting him to live the cushy captain's life, and if he leaves, there there is no way. And also, that yeah, hold this. I
1: think that's partly true, but I also think that you know Cisco is doing that partly for that reason. But he's obviously because also doing right. it because the because it's right, yeah. But also because the communications are right is really important. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that he would have decided to leave just decided to stay just to prove a point
0: no 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 but it's it's it for all of these reasons it's the right thing to do at the end of the day yeah you know the starfleet captain that we think is the coolest at the moment is going to do the right thing
1: and you know the other part of that too of course is that manpower doesn't really win this for them. i mean again cisco only provides them with like three people yeah, I, it's not like he's bringing a, a you know a platoon down or something.
0: No, and what th- that what, said, the people he brings, for example, medical Bashir is better than what they had. Oh, and sure, Dax is better at uh, the engineering or gives the different perspective. But Yes,
1: but I think yeah, well, that's where I was going with that though, is that you know, like the ship, for example, where. One of the reasons why you know maybe other powers in the galaxy underestimate the Federation is that they really underestimate their technical abilities and they really mm-hmm. underestimate um, how they actually operate and how they win things and and you know how they win this is again a bit of technobabble but they take these minds that the
0: uh, uh, Jem'Hadar put against them and they turn them against them yeah. you know
1: and and that what, is exactly how Starfleet operates and how the Federation operates.
0: What I think is very interesting about them turning the minds against them is i mean when they when they mention this plan esri looks a little upset and you know she's saying oh i i remember when when the gem jar were using them these were horrible weapons you know they were they were go they were breaking the rules and he's like yeah it's a lot friendlier when they're on our side they don't really go any further into that but that is a a it is something that's echoing in the pale moonlight as in the Dominion has forced the Federation to maybe do adopt some certain non Federation behaviors. For example, if you j- just as talking about Davy Crockett and Santa Ana, Santa Ana wasn't going to follow the rules of war. Yeah. The Dominion isn't going to follow the rules of war. So you can either decide that you're too old to change and that you're, you know, going to surrender peacefully or be destroyed, or you got to step up. And I mean, mm-hmm. one thing we can say about the Federation is that. May and maybe the naivete is that the Federation won't step up when they have to. And that's how people underestimate it.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And and you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't know how terrible using those minds actually. No,
0: was. I don't think they're you know, too I, I upset think, about I,
1: it. You know, it's not They're not doing it to be uh, uh, malicious. They're not using some sort of weapon that's going to be causing the Jemhadar an immense amount of pain. And I also want to say the
0: character who is doing that is Esri, who, even though she has memories of Battlefields, this is her personal first time on that. Jadzia may have had a different view of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Well. I think that's about all we can say about this episode, but I do not want to leave this conversation without mentioning the fact that Rom wants to sing. Yeah, that was beautiful. No, it wasn't. It was horrifying, <laughs> and I never
0: want to see it again. Okay. We're going to see it again, aren't we? I don't remember because <laughs> I blocked it out. I feel like this episode would have made one of those great like arcade-like gun games like the Terminator 1. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I that game. Yeah. How did you feel about Bashir putting on Vic Fontaine? You know, it was... Whatever I think about Vic Fontaine, it was a very well-done scene. And also, it's
1: I'll Be Seeing You, which is like, come on, guys, it's a little on the nose. No,
0: no, no. It it, it was the most dramatic. You knew it was done to make it, but I had actually forgotten that that's where the episode had begun. So it was a very nice, like, oh, he... yeah.
1: Pretty good sound system on a planet that's uh, have no supplies and is being overrun by Jem Hadar all the time. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, they the, must have a lot of fun when they beats by Dre. when they have their pool party on AR five, five, eight. I even like the name of it. You know, it, it yeah. doesn't have a descript name. It's just like a code. Yeah. Nobody I, cares about this planet. Nobody cares about it. it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's not important for any reason. I mean, isn't it there. an asteroid?
0: Even I, I thought that's because uh, no, that's kind of how asteroids are named, right? I don't
1: think so because I mean, asteroids don't really have atmospheres, and they weren't wearing it that's protective fair. clothing, so or mm. you know, atmospheric stuff.
0: But it's 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 at most a moon, like it. I got right. It, yeah, it was, it's yeah. a planetoid, if yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So. All right, well, if you have any thoughts on either of the episodes we just discussed, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash truckaboutshow, which also supports our other podcast tuning in. We are releasing episode 25 in two days on the United States of Terror Episodes Department of Fucked Up Family Services at Explosive Diorama. We like the titles. No, we do not. We're also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our username is truckaboutshow in all of those places. Now, next week, we are going to be talking about the DS9 episodes Covenant, and it's only a
0: paper moon. Oh, I bet that's going to be a Vic Fontaine episode.